1: If you can find someone who said something insensitive, you get credit if you call them out publicly. Now, what effect does that have? Does that change them? No, it makes them hate you. And if it happens to them five or ten times, and they're on the left, they begin to say, my God, what has happened? This is so unfair. And they become much more sympathetic to views on the right.
2: Hello, welcome to The Zeraclan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. At the beginning of their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, they tell the story of Boethius. Boethius was a Roman senator unjustly imprisoned for treason after he crossed the king. He was in prison and awaiting execution, and he wrote this classic, beautiful set of reflections called The Consolations of Philosophy. In it, Boethius imagines himself talking to Lady Philosophy. He tells her about his rage and his sorrow and his fear and how unfair everything is. And she responds by refocusing him on all that he has to be grateful for, the good fortune he enjoyed, the amazing career he had, the safety of his family. And in the end, Boethius, he peacefully accepts his fate. He's consoled by philosophy. In their book, Haydn Lukyanov, both of whom are psychologists, they read Lady Philosophy's intervention as this lesson in the power of cognitive behavioral therapy. They write that, quote, Each exercise helps Boethius see his situation in a new light. Each one weakens the grip of his emotions and prepares him to accept Lady Philosophy's ultimate lesson, that nothing is miserable unless you think it's so. And on the other hand, nothing brings happiness unless you are content with it. This is a lesson they think today's college students need to learn. They're worried about a culture of outrage, of call-outs, of trigger warnings, and safe spaces. They see a generation made anxious and lonely by smartphones. It's been led into a victim outlook by professors and social justice activists, and it has become so intolerant of contrary opinions. They've come to believe any idea they don't like does literal violence to them. But the story of Boethius, it also speaks to the central tension of their book, at least in my opinion. However peaceful Boethius was when he went to his death, he still went to his death. The psychological outlook that might be best for an individual in an unjust world can also hide or teach them to ignore the injustice of that world. So how do we bear witness to what's wrong in society without losing a grip on ourselves? Or let's flip it. How do we keep calls for not just students but citizens to behave more civilly, more gently from becoming efforts to protect the status quo from real criticism? I have known and admired Jonathan Haidt's work for a long time. He's a political psychologist whose book, The Righteous Mind, is one of the most influential on my thinking. He's also the co-founder of the group Heterodox Academy. And Haidt is really worried about what he sees as not just rising intolerance tolerance on campus, but a generation that he sees as learning to absorb adversity as a threat rather than a challenge. Now, I tend to view the panic about political correctness on campus as a little bit overblown and often obscuring a broader agenda to entrench much of the injustice in society. So I've wanted to talk with Haidt about these issues for a while to see where we agree and where we disagree. And I'm really glad we got the chance. Here's Jonathan Haidt.
1: John Haidt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. So, tell me about the genesis of the book. How did you come to write it? The genesis of the book is that my friend Greg Lukianoff came to see me in uh, May of 2014 uh, to report a strange thing, which is that uh, he had been running the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education for about 14 years, and he'd been defending students' free speech rights, mostly against administrators who were always trying to pass rules and regulations to protect themselves from liability and limit students' speech and the behavior. The man. The man. That's right. <laughs> Pushing— the Back against the man. And beginning in 2013, Greg began to notice that for the first time... Students were sometimes asking for protections. And so it's in 2014 that the you start to see the first articles in The New Republic and The New York Times about trigger warnings. And I'd never heard of such a thing before. So in 2013, 2014, some students are asking for trigger warnings. You know, if a book is assigned, uh, a book of Greek mythology, and, and a lot of myths have rape in them, well, you can't have college students just read that. You have to give them a warning that that's coming. Uh, we saw the first reports of safe spaces, like at Brown University, students requesting a safe space where students can go if they're traumatized by a visiting speaker. And so Greg's very puzzled. And he had a suicidal depression in 2007. He's prone to depression. He had learned CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, you learn to identify black and white thinking, catastrophizing, fortune-telling, all these dumb things we do with our in our own minds. And Greg said, wow, suddenly the students are doing that. They're talking about speech using exactly the the distortions that I learned not to do. And so he comes, he tells me all this, and he checks with me because I wrote a a book, The Happiness Hypothesis, where I covered uh, ancient wisdom and showed that CBT is basically, you know, stoic and Buddhist wisdom. Uh, And I thought his insight was fantastic because I had just begun to see the same thing, just strange things happening on college campuses. So we wrote up the article for The Atlantic. It came out in 2015. Uh, and then all hell broke loose, not because of our article, but you know, it came in August of 2015 and it was in November of 2015 that Yale erupted with the Halloween protests and then those spread national. So you know, I do feel – What was t- the Yale Halloween protest? For, yeah. those of us, for, for those of us who are not <laughs> How super could deep anyone in what happens on Yale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're outside of my bubble. So uh, at Yale, as at many schools, so administrators are increasingly regulating aspects of students' lives, how they can talk to each other, how they can have sex, what they can wear for Halloween. Uh, And so after Yale sent out a memo to all Yale students uh, advising them about here's what you shouldn't wear, here's what you should do. Erica Christakis, who's a wonderful developmental psychologist, who was currently writing a book on what we're doing to kids by overprotecting them on how we're not giving kids any independence or freedom and it's harming them. So she sees this memo and she says, oh, my God, this is exactly the problem we're doing in college. And this is a memo regulating basically Halloween costumes. Yeah, that's right. So she writes a, an email just to the students in Silliman College, one of the 12 residential colleges, where her husband, uh, Nicholas Christakis, is the master. So she writes an email saying, now, wait a second. Maybe we should be able to think for ourselves. And, you know, maybe Halloween is a time when you can be a little transgressive. And some students, especially some black students, take offense because they think or they interpret it as though she's saying it's OK to wear blackface, which she certainly is not saying. She, this is all about who should make decisions for you. So they took it in the worst possible way. I think. And we're upset about it. Now, there's always a backstory to everything. There are obviously racial issues that they're upset about other than this. But they take it out on her. They're angry at her. They demand she retract it. Nicholas goes out into the courtyard to talk to them. And that is the video, that video of students screaming obscenities at uh, Nicholas. That went viral and that was shown to the nation. And that episode and the protest afterwards launched this national movement of student protest uh, in November, December of 2015. How much do you think some of what begins happening in this
2: period is a function of social media creating this capacity mm-hmm. for things happening on individual campuses to go viral. Uh, and, yeah. and one of the reasons I ask is I went to UC Santa Cruz and UCLA and so I was part of the UC system. I grew up on campus at UCI and I remember like odd things happening at colleges all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily like that Halloween protest which which got pretty vicious but but just peculiar things where if everybody had been able to see them it would have looked bad because college students are college students, right? Like I was an idiot. But one of the things that I remember as really turning in this period is social media being used to weaponize clips of
1: kids yep. on the other side yep. acting like kids on the other side. Absolutely. This is absolutely essential. And this I think this will underline or underlie um, all of our talk today is that, you know, I, I like to think in terms of systems. And if you imagine human society as a vast Network with little clumps that are interacting, um, and it's been going on that way for thousands and thousands of years. And you know, with some increases in connectivity, you know, the printing press is an increase, the telephones an increase. You know, those things took decades or centuries to reach saturation. Uh, never before has there been uh, something that connected us all that multiplied the connectivity by a factor of a hundred in the course of three or four years. And that's what happened to us. And so all the madness, the madness that is happening in our politics, on our campuses, in the media, um, massive dysfunctions across society and across the globe, yes. It's because if you mess with the basic connectivity of human society and you multiply it by 10 in a couple of years, weird things are happening. So one of the things that is interesting to me about the way you and Greg wrote this book is – it is
2: fundamentally a book about a disjuncture in generational psychology. That, that more than it's a book about what's happening in politics or even what's happening in campuses, it's a book about how you see a certain generation having a different set of reactions to external Mm -hmm. adversity than previous generations have. Can you lay that argument out? Like, why should we believe something is different about the set of kids going to college in
1: 2014 than the set of kids going to college in 2009? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is a surprisingly sharp line. So, you know, the book is basically a kind of a detective story about – Why did this new culture, this culture of fragility, this culture in which words are thought to be violence, words will be traumatic, we need protections, why did this appear seemingly out of nowhere? in 2014. And then it really bursts forth. It goes national in 2015. So how did that happen? And there have been waves of student protests. You know, There were waves of political correctness and protests. And there was violence in, in student protests in the 60s. There's a wave in the 90s, which is not violent. It's about d- diversifying the curriculum. So these waves of protests come and go. Why is this one any different? And so that's what our book is about. And we talk about a whole bunch of factors coming together, rising political polarization, changes in universities in terms of uh, their bureaucratic structures, all sorts of things. But the new thing, the thing that I think people won't get in other books because we didn't even know it when we wrote the Atlantic article – this is only stuff that's become known in the last two or three years – is that kids born in 1995 and after are behaving differently and they have different mental health patterns than kids born a few years before – If you think about it, you know, the biggest disjunction we've ever seen in generations is 1946. So if you're born in 1946, the nature of your childhood growing up at the head of the baby boom is just really different than if you were born in 1943. And it looks now like we have as big a disjunction in 1995. There are two main reasons. Well, can I I ask quickly, before we get into the reasons, what is the disjunction? Can you lay out the evidence that this generation Mm -hmm. is different? Yes. So this was all done by Jean Twenge in her book, iGen. And, you know, a lot of people love to criticize, but I've not yet heard any criticisms that actually show her to be wrong about this. If you look at the curves, there's you know, dozens and dozens of graphs and th- they tell the same story. So the clearest way to say it is if you look at what teenagers are doing with their time, there, there are time use studies uh, that go back decades. And so if you look at the the percentage of teenagers who have a driver's license when they're in 12th grade. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, if the DMV is closed on your birthday, you'd have to wait till Monday, but you wouldn't wait till Tuesday to get your license. But beginning with Gen Z, so she, she calls them iGen, but Gen Z seems to be winning. I will go with Gen Z. As soon as Gen Z comes on the scene, a lot of them don't bother to get a driver's license. And it's in part because they don't go out that much. They do not work for pay nearly as much as the millennials did. Uh, they don't drink as much. They don't have sex as much. So they're mostly spending their time or they're spending vast amounts of time on social media. It was a weird way in which they're better behaved. You could say better behaved if you're focusing on deviant behavior. Yes, that's true.
2: I always am. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm very concerned about okay. deviant behavior. Okay. But how, do you have kids? How old are your kids? I don't have kids. Okay. That's why I'm so concerned because I can <laughs> because look purely from the kids. outside. Right. I just yeah. want
1: them off my lawn. Oh, well, don't worry. Kids won't be going on your lawn. Yeah, they're inside. We, don't, them, that's, we, don't, we don't allow them out. <laughs> that's right. We don't allow them out anymore. So <laughs> so what happens? So kids aren't going out as much. Okay. So that's, you might say, all right, is that good or bad? Well, we know it's bad because the mental health stats are devastating. And um, what I mean is by almost any measure, if you look at mental health, there's no change at all in schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, almost anything you can name unless it's a mood disorder. So anxiety and depression are skyrocketing. The rates for boys are up substantially. The rates for girls are up astronomically. Uh, And so just, you know, some people say, uh, there was an article in the New York Times a month or two ago saying, oh, it's just that young people are comfortable reporting. They're comfortable talking about it. It's not real. No. It's real. And the way that we know this is because if you look at hospital admissions for self-harm, how many kids – are admitted to a hospital because they've cut themselves or drank poison in a way that didn't kill them. Uh, And it was very stable from 2000 to 2010. In the beginning, 2011, 2012, the boys don't change. This is one where the boys don't change. But the girls go up. The youngest girls, 10 to 14-year-old girls who didn't used to cut themselves, that is up, I just calculated yesterday, 189% increase since 2011. The millennial girls, the girls in the 20s are not up. So, It's only Gen Z that is having this mental health problem, not the millennials. And suicide is up. Exactly. That's the real, well, uh, the real kicker. The rate for boys, now the rate for boys was higher in the 90s during the crime wave and there was a lot of violence, uh, but then it went down. It's been steady from 2000 to 2010. The rate for boys since that first decade is up 25%. For teenage American boys, is up 25% since about 2011, and the rate for girls is up 70%. There's a 70% increase in this country. I'm going to London next week. I've been looking at the British stats. Same thing for girls. They're, their boys aren't up that much, but their girls are way up. Their girls are self-cutting. So this is not just America. This, we believe, is a combination of social media and vast overprotection that denied kids the chance to learn how to face risks. So
2: let's go go through those two pieces. Let's talk a bit about social media. You have a pretty interesting discussion in the book of why social media appears to be worse for, for young women than for, yeah. for men
1: why so two things you have to always look at is you know teenagers are very very social and they're clumsy at it they're just learning how to be social and so you have to look at how do they get prestige and what is the nature of their aggression And it turns out girls are just as aggressive as boys. Uh, We've known this since research by Nikki Crick in the 80s and 90s. But boys' aggression is physical. They physically bully and threaten each other. So the key events here are that Facebook opens to the world in 2006. You can be 13 and get an account. You can be 11 and lie and get an account. Uh, But very few kids do. Then the iPhone comes out in 2007. So now you can have Facebook and things like that in your pocket. But very few kids do. It's only by 2009 or ten that... You know, half or more teenagers now have this. And so what happens? Boys, what do they do? Does it change their aggression? Not well in the sense that boys love shooter games. And so, you know, my son plays shooter games where they roam around imaginary worlds and kill people. But it's a team. It's teamwork. You know, they're working. They're talking through the device. So it's, it's, uh, video games turn out to not be as bad as we'd feared five or ten years ago. The girls, though, the nature of their aggression is completely transformed because what girls do is they damage each other's relationships. It's what's called relational aggression. And so it's subtle. It's behind the scenes. You, de- you spread rumors. And social media allows girls to bully each other 24-7. They can't escape. So that's one piece. The other piece, probably just as big, is fear of missing out. Girls' status is based on how central they are. If And they can see, they can track, oh my God, all my friends are over there at so-and-so's house and I'm not included. It's very painful. And so I've heard stories about teenage girls who will give their phone to a friend to take to a party to take a, a picture so that they can, and then post it for them on Instagram so it looks like they were there. So it, social media really does a number on girls' quest for status and on their aggression. And, and so the thing you say in the book is that This generation of kids enters college with a level of mental health fragility that is unusual. That is unprecedented. So they're coming in in a vulnerable state. There has never been a generation like this. Now, let me be clear. Most teenagers are fine. Most teenagers are Happy, they're not depressed. But when you take an incoming college population that had been about 5% of people having mood disorders, 5 or 10%, and then suddenly it goes up to 20 or 25%, this is transformative. This really causes a change to the nature of interaction. So it's not that most students want safe spaces and trigger warnings. But some do and interestingly, it's not usually students demanding it for themselves. It's usually, we need to protect them. I'm standing up for them. So it's the call out culture in which a person gets prestige for standing up for victims. That's what a lot of it is.
2: So I, I want to put a pin in that. Um, let's talk for a minute about overparenting because that's the other piece of yeah. uh, of, of your explanation.
1: Mm -hmm. Walk me through it. Sure. So think about it this way. I I like to think in metaphors, so here's one. Suppose someone said, you know, reading – it's really bad for kids. They they could read something scary. So how about if we don't let kids read until they're fourteen, uh, and then at Seems fourteen we we'll, we'll teach them to read. So you know now they could probably learn to read at fourteen, but they would never be as good at it as adults. There's a sensitive period for language learning. We know. So you know, so my my kids go to New York City public schools. They don't teach them Spanish. Or they don't teach them language until seventh grade, when it's just about too late. It's really dumb. From about age seven to. 12 is when you can learn a language like a native speaker. And so it's terrible to wait until the end of that critical period. Now, let's think about independence. For all of human history, kids play outside in mixed age groups and they practice the skills of adulthood. The the adults aren't there supervising them. They're not watching them. The kids learn to take risks. They learn to master risks. And so as I go around the country speaking about the book, I always ask the audience, people over 40, when were you let out? And the answer is always six or seven, sometimes eight. Nobody was kept in until they were 10. This is the golden age of childhood. This is when kids have gangs and packs. This is when street kids happen all over the world. I've studied street kids. So there's a sensitive period. There seems to be a sensitive period for independence and cultural learning from about age 7 to about age 12 or 13. And what we did in the 90s, just as the crime wave was ending, I mean, when I grew up, it was really dangerous. There was a lot of crime. Kids got mugged. You had to carry muggers' money if you lived in a city. I mean, you know, but we were allowed out. And then as the crime wave is ending in the 90s, Americans freaked out, driven by media panic and began to believe that if they let their kid walk to school the kid'll be abducted. Now that did happen to a couple of kids, Aton Pates in particular in New York in 1979, but we freaked out, we got the idea that they'll be abducted and then by the early 2000s parents started getting arrested If their kids are caught playing in a park, if a 10- and an 8-year-old kid are found in a park, the parents could be arrested. And so by the early 2000s, we've completely locked our kids down, not as much in very rural areas, but in cities and suburbs. We've locked them down. We don't trust each other. We're afraid for our lives. And then by about 13 or 14, then we let them out. But it's too late it's too late. Their brains have not learned to master risk. They are risk deprived. So when they come to college, little things like a book of Greek myths, like a speaker that you don't like, these things are now really painful to some students. This is where in the argument there seems
2: to me to be a jump and I'm curious how you think about it. Because as I understand it what you're saying is that you have these kids coming in with higher levels of anxiety and depression and you have kids coming in who have not had as much kind of risk-appropriate play when they were young. exactly. And so they're coming in this fragile state. But we also know that what's happening in colleges, to the extent people are worried about this, is that there are some kids, a very small minority, who are engaged in on-college activism, Mm -hmm. who are asking for certain kinds of political concessions or certain boundaries on speech or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. How do you know it's the same kids? Yeah,
1: good question. So one thing I've learned from traveling around the country is that the mental health crisis is everywhere, in the north and the south, rural, uh, urban, wherever you look. And uh, Gene Twenge's data shows this too. The national data shows this too. The the increase in depression and anxiety is especially sharp for girls of all social classes, races. This is why we think social media is one of the main drivers. Um, So that's everywhere. But the linking of that to political demands for safe spaces and other kinds of protection, that is not national. So as I travel around, I find in the northeast, especially at liberal arts colleges, but in the Northeast and right along the West Coast, there, it's the rule. That is, it's generally happening. But as Jeff Sachs, a political scientist in Canada, pointed out, we had a very productive debate over this. As he pointed out, there's you know 4,500 institutions of higher education in this country. And at the great majority of them, none of this is happening. There's no safe spaces, no trigger warnings. These are community colleges or non-selective or they're in the South or rural areas. So the politicization of fragility is not an, is not happening everywhere. But if you make a list of America's top 100, 150 schools, it's happening. Happening at most of them, so that's the first thing for the background. Now the question: How do we know it's the same? There, I don't have data for you. I can only say that many of the cases that I've seen of particular people, uh, they talk about their anxiety. They talk about their anxiety disorders. So we do not know that the protesters are any different from average. We don't know that, but they are adopting a language of fragility and defensiveness. They see the world in terms of oppressors and oppressed, and they bring onto this landscape of greater mental illness, a language of of oppression and fighting back against it. So let's talk about that because that seems to me to be a key thing.
2: One of the themes in the book is that from a cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint, to tell yourself you're oppressed, to look around Mm -hmm. and see aggression, to look around and see injustice, it can be bad for you, that it's a kind of negative Mm self-talk. At the same time, what might make sense for psychotherapy might not make sense for social change. Mm -hmm. Right. To look around and realize there's a lot more injustice here than I thought. Mm -hmm. I am subject to an amount of discrimination or oppression that is, you know, more than I wish and more than I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be true and it might be radicalizing, even as it's an uncomfortable way to live and an Mm -hmm. uncomfortable thing to realize. And one of the tensions to me in the book is I think there's a, a set of arguments about what might be best for individuals, like what if you, were, if you were their therapist and worried about their mental health, what you would want them to do and how you might want them to react? And what might be best for society? What might, what, what, what might be the reality of society as uncomfortable as
1: it is and, and as difficult as it is for people to grapple with? Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about resolving yeah. that. Sure. No, that's a great question. You know, some people say, oh, height and Lukiana for saying students should just shut up and accept inequalities and be happy. No, not at all. A crucial move that we, I think we always have to make is to, is to describe what domain we're talking about. So if we're talking about the criminal justice system in the United States, there's a lot of injustice there. There's a lot of racial injustice. For students to be angry about that, I think, is right. And is not harmful to them. So when I, was at, when I was at Yale, it was all about South Africa. We were all organized against South Africa for Nicaragua against El Salvador. Now, joining together in a righteous crusade against injustices is thrilling. It's not bad for you. But what's happening now is students are applying these same ideas to their local environment. Um, now, places like Yale, Middlebury, are these deeply racist places? I'm not saying they're free of racism, but if you are learning, as I learned in my mandatory diversity training last week, if you are being told every institution was created to keep black people down and white people up. That's a claim that I was told by my diversity trainer last week. If you're told that and you're told, you know what, everyone has implicit biases. Everyone dislikes you. And if they say something that makes you uncomfortable, it's an act of aggression. This is a way to make people paranoid. This is a way to make people distrustful. This is a way to make them disempowered. So I completely agree- I mean student activism that's aimed at writing what are clear injustices as we're, you know in the, in the 1960s, the Vietnam War, legal racial discrimination, Uh, I would never say, oh, just shut up and accept it. But you have to have activism that's based on a commitment to truth. And this is what we don't have on campus. We have a lot of passion and it is based on fashionable ideas that are often contradicted by the data. And so it's a kind of activism that I think makes students waste their four years rather than being open, rather than learning, rather than making friendships, rather than enjoying diversity – it's turned into a kind of paranoia. So I want to try to think this part of it through because
2: I'm partially sympathetic to this and partially unsympathetic to it. And one reason is that you have a an analogy, and I think it comes from Van Jones in the book, of colleges being or universities being a gym, right? It's like a gym for the mind. Yep. And it's a place where you can make yourself stronger safely, right, as opposed to, you know, going out and trying to lift a car or whatever. And, you know, I remember from being in college that there is a very intense and blown up focus on what is going on at the college, for mm-hmm. instance, in in the University of California system. There is a lot of focus on – about workers' rights at Mm -hmm. the University of California. we had that at Yale in the 80s. And now you might look at that and you might say, oh my god, like people with full-time jobs at the University of Mm -hmm. California compared to peasants who are not getting enough to eat in rural parts of pick your poorest country in the world. Mm -hmm. Like what are you doing? Like this is like – this is a ridiculous thing to focus on. But something that has always seemed to me to be true is it college is a kind of gym for activism too, mm-hmm. right? And that within the somewhat safer space of the of the of the academic environment, students learn how to organize, they mm-hmm. learn how to make political claims, they, and they do that by focusing on what is nearest at hand and what what they can affect. And that does have the effect of getting them to focus a little bit intensively on something that, compared to much of the rest of society, to say nothing of mm-hmm. the rest of the world, is you know maybe objectively not that bad. But on the other hand that might be valuable training. Okay so and, let's, let's, right. and the idea that college does you know and obviously there is I mean I don't know if, if I want to go so far as to say everybody's biased against you, but implicit bias is a real thing. We'll talk and about that. And the idea
1: do – you, do you not believe it is? No, no, no. Implicit associations are real. Implicit attitudes are real. We can't stop ourselves from picking up associations in the world. As for whether those associations are associated with prejudice or behavior, that is not as clear as we thought a few years ago. All right. So in addition to always being clear about what institution we're talking about, let's also always be clear about what telos or purpose we're talking about. So college isn't just about learning you know, Western civilization plus other societies. You know, If you didn't learn about civilization and, and other societies, you would have wasted your time. But that's not all you do. You also have all kinds of experiences. Perhaps you, you think that you're there to become a better kind of activist after you get out. Fine. There's lots of purposes you can pursue in college. Let's shift away from education, let's focus on activism. Suppose that all all some people cared about is we're in a culture war, Trump is a fascist, we've got to produce better activists. Suppose that's all you cared about. Well, now let's bring up Van Jones because he gave the the, the best advice I've ever seen. So the key idea here is anti-fragility. That is Some things are fragile, if you knock them over they break, nothing good happens. Some things are resilient, if you knock them over they don't break but nothing good happens. Some things are anti-fragile. They need to be challenged to get stronger. This is from Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. So that's the basic psychology we present in chapter one. And it's true of the immune system. It's true of our emotions. It's true of human development. So Van Jones comes to the University of Chicago, uh, interviewed by David Axelrod on his, on his podcast or talk show there. And this is just after, I think it was Corey Lewandowski or someone from the Trump administration had been invited out to Chicago to speak and some students protested. So Axelrod asks Jones, What do you think about that? What do you think about the students' request for safe spaces and keeping up people like that? And here's what Jones says. He says, you know, there's certain kinds of safe spaces like for physical safety. Yeah, of course. You know, if someone's going to call you, you know, a a racial slur, yeah, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. But then he says, and here I quote, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. And then he follows it up with a line, I don't have the quote handy, but he basically says: what we're breeding on campus is a certain kind of activism that becomes obnoxious the minute it crosses the street. And believe me, the things that happen on campus, they're caught on video, they're all over Fox News, 4chan, all the right-wing sites. So The campus activism is creating activists that hyper-energize the far right, that give them huge amounts of ammunition, and that, frankly, alienate most of the left. I hope we'll get into the Hidden Tribes report, but there are all kinds of people on the left and the middle, and they almost all hate this stuff.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash Vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like T-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago. And they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own. And every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym. I wear them around the house. I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
2: So I want to separate two things out here because I think it's one of the things that get threaded together in this conversation a lot. One is a perspective behind what people are trying to protest or what they're trying to change, right? Is there systematic discrimination and oppression throughout society, right? Is there a patriarchy, say? Then there's a question of what are the tactics they use to try to address that, And one of the tricky things in this conversation is people will switch between these two perspectives very fast, right? One minute they're talking about I don't like safe spaces and then the next minute it's like, oh, they actually don't like the more systematic uh, analysis of gender discrimination in society that that is what is being talked about by the people who sometimes want safe spaces. And one of the things that seems to me to be an interesting argument in the book and both a compelling one to me and then also one that that has I think some troubling kind of downstream implications is there's a lot in the book about – trying to take a more anti-fragile approach to these ideas, Mm -hmm. right? Trying to take an approach where you talk about Boethius, Mm -hmm. right? Who the night before he's going to be executed, uh, he's a Roman senator, the night before he's going to be executed wrongly for treason, he writes the Constellations of Philosophy and reminds himself how much good there is in his life and how his family is going to be okay and how he's lived this great life and sort of gets himself to a more serene state of mind. And that's sort of portrayed in the book as – Hey, look, like, look what you can do. Look how much control you have over your mental state. And then the next day, he's killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And that struck me as like this great metaphor for, for for some of the question here, that one of the things you're saying in the book is that the way a lot of these kids in college are being taught to think, and I'm not talking here about the most extreme safe spacers. I'm talking about a more systematic analysis of inequality and injustice and oppression can actually be bad for you. Um, that, that maybe it's a way of thinking that increases tribalization and in, you know makes you see more things as an aggression when maybe they weren't meant that way. Um, and that it might be better if you took a more Boethius-like <laughs> stance yeah. towards it. But on the other hand, social change comes out of beginning to see injustice that is often you know, rendered invisible by people who either would prefer it invisible or just don't feel it enough to realize that it's visible. Mm-hmm. And so I do not like deplatforming. There's a lot of kinds mm-hmm. of campus activism that I'm not here to defend. But the thing I was picking up on is I do think there's a very real tension that you're pointing out between, you know, what do you see in the world around you, which when you take a, an analysis of injustice, it can be very
1: um, radicalizing. Yes. But it can. also, to change it, you need that radicalization. Okay. So let's be sure that things should be changed. And again, sometimes there are systems that are so obviously oppressive, so obviously set up to keep some people up and down, that only an us versus them frontal assault will work. And obviously, simple persuasion wasn't going to get Southern legislators to to drop Jim Crow. So I'm not saying there should not be activism, but I'm I'm saying, I just took notes for three things. One is pick your battles. And so the world as it is now is, especially America, leaving aside the last couple of years, the long-term trends are that life is safer, vastly safer. Crime is down, accidents are down, things are much safer, and rights for... For all kinds of groups, uh, from you know African Americans in the '60s all the way through gay marriage a couple of years ago, it's been an astonishing, head-spinning, amazing couple, of, several decades of progress. So if that's the general trajectory, pick your battles. Things are generally going well, but the internet now exposes us to a hundred little things a day, and so campus activists should decide: Are we going to protest food in the dining hall today? Are we going to protest somebody who wore the wrong kinds of earrings today? Are we going to protest somebody who used a word that we don't approve of today? And the answer should always be no. Pick your battles. You look ridiculous to the rest of the world with the sorts of things you're protesting. So don't diffuse your activism on little things. Secondly, general rule of life, give people the benefit of the doubt. This is one of the great truths, one of the ancient truths. We're all set to be hypercritical of others and to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. So imagine a world in which we educated students to say, by all means, look for injustice, but one— Be sure you understand what's happening. Don't just go off protesting. You've got to do deep study. Social systems are really complicated. Universities are really complicated. Most of the reforms demanded of universities will make things worse for black students. Most of them have either no empirical basis or there's evidence that they actually increase hostility and marginalization. So if you're going to change a complex institution, if you're going to be arrogant enough to believe that you as a freshman in college know better about how Yale or any other school should be organized, and you're going to demand change and you're going to back it up, not with reasons, but with threats. College administrators give in almost always, not because they are persuaded, but because they are afraid. Is that really the way you want to win? And if you do win, it's going to be a Pyrrhic victory because the things we're doing on campus are going to make things worse. So yeah, I am not a big fan of Campus activism that is not based on research that is contradicted by research that is fueled by a social media amplified crowd in which dissent is not allowed. How could you possibly figure out the truth if anyone who says, "Now wait a second, is this really going to work?" is going to be ostracized or shamed? You can't know the truth. I want to make sure I understand
2: what you're talking about when I'm talking about and okay. Make sure the same thing. Here. Probably not, because one of the things I'm noticing is that. You certainly have a larger database of individual campus protests mm-hmm. that uh, I think not only are, are in your head, but you're you're, you're upset about them. Like mm-hmm. I can I can see it there. Yeah. Um, there's a broader critique in your book that's the one I'm sort of more interested in, which is about a way of seeing the world that you say is happening on campus mm-hmm. and that you think is potentially problematic for the like the individual psyches of students. Yes. I'm going to be honest. I don't really care about most campus protests. I just don't. Like, I don't think there are that many of them. I don't think they're that important. I take your point on students protesting at the dining hall, and it's not the biggest deal, but it's just not a huge deal to me. What I think is interesting about the book, though, is if people are being acculturated to a way of seeing the world that is bad for them and bad for the world, mm-hmm. then that is a really big deal, right? Yes. Then that, then we've gone beyond some stuff happens on college campuses that gets rocket fuel from social media and like honestly the best thing we could probably do is ignore it because like there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world like people protesting the dining hall is just Mm -hmm. it's just not that high on my list so I want to read a a quote from the book because this is the part I'm talking about by the end of their first week on campus students have learned to score their own and others level of privilege Identify more distinct identity groups and see more differences between people. They've learned to interpret more words and social behaviors as acts of aggression. They've learned to associate aggression, domination, and oppression with privileged groups. And and the point you're making in that chapter is that this way of looking at the world, it makes people more tribal. It increases polarization. It's built to activate that us versus them software. And this to me is is one of the big hard questions. Like I study polarization. I study identity. We've had many conversations about this stuff in the past. And one of the things that I worry about is that – I think an accurate view of the world includes a lot of quite radicalizing recognitions around privilege, around um, discrimination, around injustice, that I think a lot of things are much worse than the most socially stable way of viewing them is. On the other hand, I don't think it's wrong that seeing the world that way can do dangerous things in our mental software, that it can polarize us, that it can contribute to political instability. Like that to me is a tough tension in the book. I think you outline a lot of ways in which – Getting radicalized may not be the best thing for you as a person, and yet it may also be true about the world you live in. And trying to have a more stoic attitude about it, that doesn't benefit the people who are being heard. It ultimately benefits the people who just don't want to have to think about this because, you know, like it was fine for them the way
1: it was. Okay, and I see what you're saying, but let's let's take a broader view on, on human development here. Let's look at college students. They come from high schools all over the country, all over the world even. And they have four years of time in college and then they're going to go out and get a job. What would actually make them effective human beings for whatever they want to do, whether it be activism, uh, arts, science, anything? What would make them effective human beings? One of the most important skills is to be able to cooperate with people. And we we don't do things alone. We do things uh, as part of teams. So students come to college. Now, they're already, they've are already they already been made morally dependent. This is a very important concept in the book. It used to be the case that kids got in fights and settled it themselves because there was no adult present. But since the 90s, there's always been an adult present, at least until age 14 and, and even after. So kids have been given all these bureaucratic procedures. If you see something, say something. There's always someone to complain to. An adult will help you solve the problem. They come to college, and then they're asking for that now. So uh, you know, in every bathroom at NYU, there's a sign telling students how to report me if I say something that offends them. So I'm very careful what I say. I can't take chances. I don't tell jokes. So there are all kinds of administrators and deans that will settle things if they are offended. Now, is this a good idea? Or at some point, should they learn how to deal with possible conflicts on their own? All right. So students go through college where we continue the overprotection all the way through college, and then they're hired in a company. Now, when our Atlantic article came out in 2015, a lot of people said, sort of as you did, you know, I don't care what happens on campus. It's just campus. As soon as they come out into the real world, they'll have to stop this stuff. They'll have to toughen up. They'll have to accept that they can't make things the way they want. Well, it turns out that's wrong. Industries that hire from elite American universities, and here I mean primarily media, tech, and journalism, I've heard from people in all three of those fields that the students they've hired in the last few years and their interns are bringing these demands. Uh, One review of our book on Amazon, the guy said something like, Oh, thank you for this book. This explains why my smart new young hires go running to HR at the first provocation, and then they won't even show up to the meeting with the person who supposedly offended them because that would be too scary, too dangerous. So, these issues are flowing out into the work world. We are training or somehow complicit in creating a generation of Americans that is not able to work cooperatively, that will file charges, and my bet is we'll file many more employment discrimination suits coming up. So, I I don't think we're serving anyone well. I think this is really bad for society and really bad for them. But I'm
2: trying to think about this. So, because I want to make sure that we're talking through the same thing here, but I, I think we are. So... I can't respond to sort of individual Amazon reviews. And as somebody who's, you know, run a, a newsroom and and has been involved in this, like, I actually do agree. Like, I think that there is among younger folks who came into, into the places that I've been part of, there is much more of a willingness to say, hey, that made me really uncomfortable. That was bad. Like, I mm-hmm. want that to stop. Like, I'm here. I'm coming and filing a complaint to HR. And, you know, like, I can on the one hand see how that's really annoying and at times it has annoyed me. And I can also say that that's why we had Me Too. Like, that's why Me Too has been so effective. Mm -hmm. That one of the things that I, I wonder about in this conversation is, look, in any change in social norms, there's a fringe and there are people who use it badly. But you're talking about the inability to work cooperatively. And that doesn't seem to me to be something that is actually problematic here. It's like... There's been a lot of cooperative working from um, young people trying to change workplaces, right? We just had the big Google walkout just the other Mm -hmm. day. And in fact, Google responded to those demands. Coming to places that have hierarchies and then organizing to change the hierarchy. I mean, how you feel about it is going to depend a little bit on how you feel about the underlying claims being made, right? Do you think workplaces Mm -hmm. are rife with sexual um, harassment and assault? Like on and on and on. But that's a pretty reasonable way to think about social change, particularly within companies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I can really read this both ways, I feel. Like, I can read the generation coming out and say, yeah, they really do. They they run to HR immediately. And then I can also say, well, the generation before them – because they didn't, because mm-hmm. they sort of tried to be more stoic about it, because they tried to, you know, go along to get along yeah. and deal with things more directly, what was allowed to happen was that, you know, powerful men sexually assaulting women yeah. in workplaces all across the country were allowed to stay there. I'm not saying you're on the side of that. God knows, right? I want to be mm-hmm. very clear. Right, I'm you. talking <laughs> okay. about—but I, what I am saying here is that I wonder if you're underrating the value of what is being learned here, which is to say to connect— a much more pervasive understanding mm-hmm. of certain kinds of injustice yeah. and um, and discrimination to uh, a more aggressive willingness to organize and band together and go to people in power and say, you know, if, if you don't change this, we're going to make
1: a lot of noise and create a mm-hmm. problem for you. Yes. So the Me Too example is, is a great one. You know, when I was growing up, um, you know, I went to Yale in the 80s. I was there when Kavanaugh was there. I didn't know him. But it is true that... Oh, so it's your fault. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is true that the kinds of jokes that were told, the, the nature of male-female interactions, people just sort of assume, well, this is just the way it is. And every woman has faced creeps, many creeps. And for decades, we just kind of assume. well, that's the way it is. So I do think the Me Too movement had to happen. There was no way to change this by gentle persuasion. It was a massive injustice involving physical violence and rape and just huge numbers of indignity. So the Me Too movement, I think, is overall, a very good thing. It had to happen. And I agree that activism was necessary. So again, I'm not saying don't be an activist. I'm saying pick your battles. That was a big one. That was a very, very important thing to change in society. But I am saying that when you're trying to change complex institutions like universities or workplaces, an attitude of first, give people the benefit of the doubt, try to solve the problem internally, try to go to the person first, we should be teaching people, okay, someone says something you don't like, first go to the person, you know, if everybody would just read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, someone says something insensitive, you go to them privately and you don't say, hey, you said something insensitive. You say, you know, I I know you probably didn't mean anything by it, but just, you know, so you know, this is how that effect, like that will usually actually work. That will, if you approach people in the right way, you can actually change them. But instead, because we're all caught up in an economy of prestige, social media has amplified this. Young people get credit for publicly calling someone out. They don't get credit for going to someone privately. They have learned because of growing up on social media that if you can find someone who said something insensitive, you get credit if you call them out publicly. Now, what effect does that have? Does that change them? No, it makes them hate you. They hate you. And if it happens to them five or ten times th- and they're on the left, they begin to say, my God, what has happened? I, this is so unfair. And they become much more sympathetic to views on the right. So, again, my question is, do you actually want to solve the problem or do you just want to yell and scream to show how, how woke you are?
2: But So this feels to me like you're switching between things kind of fast here. Like we just agreed that Me Too is solving a yep. problem. Absolutely. But then there was like a move into – Sort of a frame of call-out culture, which I don't think is actually how most young people deal with things in workplaces or really anywhere that I can tell. Well,
1: because you but, but we're talking about Gen Z here, not the millennials. But I
2: I employ Gen Z. Okay. And so I can't say it never happens, right? I don't want to tell you that nobody ever does call-out culture. And like as a public writer on the internet, I get called out a lot. I don't love it. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to the to the feeling on the other side of this. And then there's this question of like, is it effective? And what I'm trying to sort of disentangle here, because what's funny is, like, I'm actually sympathetic to a lot of the way you sort of frame this in in the book. Um, but what I'm noticing here is there's a lot more passion around some of the tactics that people are using that can be counterproductive Mm -hmm. and a sort of universalizing of those tactics, which doesn't really accord with either my experience of college campuses or of workplaces. Something you say at the end, right? At the end of the book, you're very optimistic and you say, look, we think this is going to get better because the vast overwhelming majority of faculty, of students who we talk to, they Mm -hmm. don't like the worst of this stuff. They don't want call out culture. They don't, you know, they want to deal with things in a humane sort of person to person Mm -hmm. way. That's also my experience. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I'm pulling back from a little bit here is the idea that sort of all of the people coming out of this generation or even of these no, not all. colleges are acting this way in in the world. I, I just no, most don't know if it's not. true. Yeah, most are not. But the other thing that I think is kind of at the heart of a lot of this is this idea about, you know, what is the right way to look at a world with injustice? Like, what is the right way to think about these kind of bigger issues? I think we're talking a lot about tactics here. But one of the things in in, in the book is this focus on, you know, you, you talk about safetyism, for instance, this question of can words and should words be thought of as violence, and you know, the the idea that say misgendering somebody is a kind of violence or speaking in a way that's racially mm-hmm. insensitive is a kind of violence. And and you make the point that it might be insensitive. And tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, you you make the point that it might be insensitive, but it's not violence. That we need to we can't have this kind of concept creep be mm-hmm. between physical harm and rudeness, basically, mm-hmm. or 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 even racism or, or whatever it might be. And I really get that, right? My kind of ears prick up when I hear that too. I think that, that sounds really overheated. But the best arguments that have been made about it to me are sort of – it's thinking about it on a society, on a macro level, not okay. a micro right. level. So let's a, right. world, so let's a world in which people are constantly misgendered is a world that will do violence to them as opposed to a world where on an individual level, people recognize they have to treat them more humanely.
1: Um, okay. I think we're kind of going around and around on the on the justice issue. Let, let's grab the, the center of it. Right. Just which I is, want to understand is, where you are on it, right? Like I, I just want to, because I think yeah. it's important to the argument. Okay. So I think there are two bright lines that if we cross, mm-hmm. we're, we're halfway on the road to hell. We're trying to build a diverse, secular, tolerant, peaceful society. It's very, very hard to do. It can be done. It has been done, um, but we have to have all the settings right. Here are two things that would really make it harder. One, let's say it's Uh, impact, not intent. Let's judge people, not based on what they meant, but entirely on what they made me feel. And there's a lot of leeway for me to feel really bad and take things in the worst possible way. So normal human judgment, we judge people based on their intent. If someone bumps into you by accident and they apologize, we don't say that it was an act of aggression. Um, So if we free people from judging by intent, we're going to have a lot more conflict and mistrust. Uh, Another one is to say um, things other than violence are violence. Oh, and I don't mean words are violence. I only mean your words are violence. My words, my side's words, That those are never violent. We can shame people. We can say horrible things about mm-hmm. them. That's not violence because we're right. Whereas you, if you say something, um, even if it's, you know, um, you know, if it's just like a defense of free speech, that can be violence. Uh, now, imagine if everybody says this, not just on my side but on your side. We have a giant escalation in the nastiness of our culture, and that's what's happened. So there are a lot of bright lines. Frankly, I think we need a kind of a Geneva Convention for the culture war. Just as you know, in, in a war, I mean, there shouldn't be. You know, poison gas, killing children. There's all sorts of things we shouldn't do, Uh, and I think there's a lot of things we need to do in order to have this culture war be less destructive. So the idea that I get to say that your side is your words are violence, which then can justify. I mean, we are going to have more violence, is my my guess here, and it's going to be justified because. If I think your side, your words are violence, well, that justifies my side in being violent. So I think this is a
2: really interesting point. I really actually want to associate myself with something you just said, which is the idea that only words on one side can be violence. I do think there's a way in which an analysis that I might even think is societally correct about power imbalance then gets – Framed onto places where that power imbalance is not the same way it is in society. And so people believe that they are acting as the weaker party when they're not the weaker Mm -hmm. party. Right. Victimhood culture. Right. And that that attaches into this idea of violence and not violence. My Mm -hmm. words can't be violence because my words have no power. That's right. um, Which is often just not true. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like a very problematic way to think. But this idea about intent is an interesting one. Um, you quote a, an essay in Everyday Feminism where they put this, I think, very sharply where you say – where they say, what does the intent of our action really matter if our actions have the impact of furthering the marginalization or oppression of those around us? And your point is, well, intent always matters. Yeah. The way I was trying to think about this – so I've lived – or I've recently moved, but I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 15 years and our local football team is called the Washington Redskins. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge ongoing war in in that city about whether or not to rename the team. And the people who like the team's name the way it is say – there's no racist intent here. It's just our mm-hmm. football team. Like a, it's like a it's a symbol and a word completely like detached from its original meaning. Mm-hmm. And Native Americans and and other folks, say, this is a racist word. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you what the intent of it is. It's hurtful. It's awful. It's impolite. It's mm-hmm. it's a terrible thing to say. It's a terrible thing to name the football team. How do you look at yeah. a case like the Redskins mm-hmm. from this sort of? You should
1: always give people the benefit of the doubt, and the intent should matter. Perspective. Okay, right. That's a great question. So, the concept of microaggressions is one of the central concepts here, and I think the concept of a microaggression is right on two points and wrong on one big one. It's right that there could be very small acts of true aggression. People might say something that is truly racist in intent, but they say it as a joke in a deniable way. So, the concept of a microaggression is useful. The second way in which I think it's useful is that there is a large class of events in which no harm is intended, but the cumulative impact on people is negative, and we should talk about it and we should try to reduce it. So especially anybody who doesn't look clearly black, white, or East Asian is often asked, Well, so what are you? You know, I'm trying to figure it out. What are you? And there's no hostile intent, but that's tiresome. We should be training college students. Don't do that. So, but that's not aggression. We need the word faux pas. In fact, we need the word faux pas so badly in the English language. We had to take it from the French because you need it. So my general view is in making moral judgments about aggression, we need intent. But then there's a larger class of things in which there's no hostile intent, but they still should be changed or we can talk about changing them. Those are often faux pas. Now, to bring it back to the redskins, this I think brings us also to the issue of cultural appropriation, which I think is actually very easy to solve. The idea of stay in your lane is so offensive in a diverse society. The idea that people should only use something from their culture is offensive. Of course, we can borrow from each other's culture. What we shouldn't do is mock each other. So, you know, I often think like, okay, the Washington Redskins, you know, what if they had the, you know, the Jewish Moyles? Like there was a team somewhere called the Moyles, you know, the people who circumcise. Playoff contenders every year, the Moyles. (laughs) And so at games, they made, you know, stereotypical Jewish... Uh, expressions and they pretended to do circumcisions. Um, You know, I could see how that would be taken as as mocking. So, uh, you know, things like the Washington Redskins, I actually think that those could or perhaps should be changed. But if a high school girl wears a Chinese dress, there's no mocking, there's no bad intent. And when elements of the left, you know, go crazy, that's cultural appropriation. They look ridiculous. And what's really going on, what's going on under the surface here, the basic logic, I think, is... That students who are trained in this way, students who take courses in these this, the studies departments, what are sometimes called the grievance studies, students who take courses in that way, they learn a way of looking at the world, and it divides everybody on binary dimensions. There's, you know, white is up, which is bad. Non-white is down, which is good. Male is up, which is bad, because it's powerful, oppressive, privilege, et cetera. Female and other genders are down, which is good. And if we teach people to think about the world in this way, we're taking – Human beings who evolved for tribalism, who evolved to do us versus them, and while we should be trying to turn that down so that we can all get along and enjoy and benefit from diversity, I think in some departments and some universities we're turning it up. And it's only once you see that, when you see these diagrams with the bad people on top and the good people on the bottom, that you understand these key terms, which is punching up and punching down. That's a very powerful metaphor. If you see the world in terms of binary dimensions, good and evil, up and down— Then you think, well, you should never punch down. You should never – the high people should never do anything that harms the good people. In fact, they shouldn't even benefit from the work of the good people. That's why cultural appropriation only applies to the people on top. They are not allowed to listen to music or wear clothing from people below the line, below the center line. Punching down is always bad, but punching up is good it's a good thing to make fun of white people. It's a good thing to make fun of men. It's a good thing to say we hate them. And this isn't just college. This is this is Sarah Jong at the New York Times. That was That's what that controversy was about. Can one be racist against white people? And some people say, by definition, no. Saying terrible things about white people isn't racism. What effect does that have on the culture war? Boy, is that effective in hyperactivating not just people on the right, but people in the middle. So one of the things I'm hearing in
2: this is, it's funny. So I really, really dislike a lot of the cultural appropriation conversation and— you know, somebody who believes in a diverse kind of melting potish society, I often find myself on the side of, of you know, like the women who have the burrito cart. Yeah. <laughs> it like does not seem like a problem. Oh, my God. But the thing yeah. I want to be careful about here is to just be honest about this, I'm not hearing as kind of good faith – An interpretation of some of these counter arguments from you, as in some ways I was expecting. So like, take take the Sarah Young thing or some of the cultural appropriation arguments. A lot of the cultural appropriation arguments are not that the people on top should never be able to benefit from the people on bottom. It's that they always have been benefiting from the people on bottom and have been doing that without giving the people who they were taking from credit. And that there is some kind of right that needs to be redressed, and some kind of rules that need to be rewritten. And mm-hmm. of course, you can find people on the way far edge of that conversation, where it's like these two women cannot have a burrito cart because burritos are a food that originated in yeah. another place. And I they mean, they can't benefit we, from it. But one of the things that I think is poisonous in the conversation is that for people on all sides of it, the worst versions of it become representative, exactly. As opposed to the best versions becoming representative. Or Sarah Zhang, who I, I've had um, podcast conversations about this. Before before, I find her case, like, really complicated because, you know, her view was that she was satirizing a kind of discourse. Now, I completely agree that you would not have been able to do this in a different dimension, but there's no doubt that there is a kind of Twitter discourse that operates in this like satirical, you know, ban all men, kill all men way. And it's like, I've made this point before, but you know, like I have friends who are close to me who will in my presence, like make the joke when they hear about something, you know, terrible that they do, did something misogynistic, kill all men. And they don't actually mean they want me put to death. They're, they're making a kind of joke that is like meant to make light of a situation that is really mm-hmm. uh, unpleasant for them. And This feels to me like one of the really complex parts of it, this idea of, like, should groups that are at different levels in the power structure, in the sort of social power structure, let's say, do they operate under different rules? Are there things you can say about one that you can't say about another? And if so, which things? Um, Like, to what degree is equality about just sort of, like, Firing the starting gun now and saying everybody needs to be treated the exact same now, given the like ongoing inequalities in society and to what degree is inequality about to saying we actually need to redress some past mm-hmm. inequalities. Okay. We need to think about the past differently
1: and that needs to inform the way we go forward in the present. OK, great set of points. So first – I wish we could all be more playful. I wish that Twitter, you know, Twitter sometimes is playful, but obviously it's often taken this, out of context. I think, is a great point. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so look, if, you know, I would like to live in a world where Sarah Jong could say those things and people understood this is playful. But then by the same token, you'd have to say that the alt-right and the trolls, they're being playful. The things and that's they, what they say, say yeah. yeah. So, so if you're going to accept Sarah Jung, then you have to accept the alt right. And I think there are very few people on this planet, other than comedians, who would accept both sides. Well, I don't think that's. I want to be careful about that. I Why? don't think
2: one. I think a lot of people on the alt right literally are quite racist. So I don't mm-hmm. think yeah, I don't think agree. you have to accept everybody's claim that they're joking in exactly the same way. It depends very much on their. Okay, behavior. but we're
1: all so prone to hypocrisy, so prone sure. to saying the best. Let's take the best interpretation of our side and yep, the worst of the other side. True. So I just want to at least point that out. Uh, the second thing is. There's a, there's a sort of a biblical way of thinking. It's a natural way of thinking, which is that there are groups and these groups have qualities. And if this group did something to us, then we're entitled to doing something to that group. And this is why it's okay to bomb or kill groups in revenge. Uh, you know, This we saw in the Bosnian War because of things that happened in the 14th century or 15th century, it's okay to kill Bosnians now or whatever it is. So I think one of the hallmarks of progress and an essential feature, if you want to build a diverse, tolerant, secular, liberal society, You've got to get over this. You've got to stop seeing people as members of races. Uh, if you see people as members of races and groups who've done bad things to our group, that's exactly what Robert Bowers thought. That's what he tweeted, uh, that these, you know, the Jews are doing things to my people. That's ex- pretty much exactly what he tweeted. So I, I think the label historically marginalized groups is great. There's no doubt that people used to be marginalized because of their race, their sexual orientation. So to say historically marginalized is a fine descriptive term. But I object to bringing students to a place like Yale and saying, OK, you're a gay student at Yale. You are marginalized. Really? you 're going to tell people you 're going to tell people to take an identity as a group that you're a victim at Yale, which when I was there I mean of course there were you know nasty jokes told which are probably much less common now, but these are institutions that are really trying hard to include people, so you slipped into it a little bit when you were saying like they have done things to us it's that us them thinking by group that I probably that, didn't say us because i'm not part of the okay. <laughs> but I take okay. your point so I think that of course we have to be always cognizant of of past injustices, and we have to always recognize that they're not all gone. But one interesting thing is that I think many people, and we should, again, we should bring in the Hidden Tribes group, because what we're talking about here is the 8% that's called the progressive activists. That's really what's driving this on campus. The Hidden Tribes today, they got seven tribes. The one on the far left is the progressive activists. The one on the far right is the committed conservatives. Among the progressive activists, 8% of the country, but probably 30 or 40% or more of campus if you tell them if you have a study and you say look we did a study on you know we switched the genders on on job applications and what do you think happened well it turns out that in the sciences people really really want to hire women i mean we've been trying for decades to diversify every aspect of the academy and when a study was done showing that people more want to read and are more impressed by an ap- a cv that's a woman than a man what happens people freak out they say no way they're offended this can't be now at a university, we've got to be based on data. We've got to be based on evidence. But there are some factions on campus that are very much based on ideology. so article of faith. As I learned in my diversity training, every institution in America is set up to keep straight white men up and everyone else down. Evidence be damned. This is what I believe. Now, you can't make progress that way. If you actually want to make the world better, you have to understand it. You sound like you had a very bad diversity training. Oh, my God. It was horrible. Absolutely (laughs) horrible. Two hours, we learned nothing about how to teach. Not even a clue. It was all trying to get us to acknowledge our white privilege. I think bad diversity trainings are a very radicalizing thing.
2: I've run into this before. Exactly. It's a a very bad
1: thing. Exactly. They backfire. But but watch what happens all around the corporate world. Whenever there's an event like at Starbucks, more diversity training. No attempt to figure out if it works. Starbucks had an opportunity to learn what works. They didn't do it because nobody actually cares. They
3: do it for the liability. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1, 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash gray area.
0: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. visit mercury.com to join more than one hundred thousand startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
2: One of the tricky things in this conversation, it's a place where I think a lot of campus activists go awry and a lot of their critics go awry in the opposite way is there's a switching between are we taking a social analysis or an individual analysis? And so take microaggressions, right? You were talking about those a couple of minutes ago. Microaggressions are something that I think are a very useful concept, but they suffer a lot from the uh, imprecision at the level in which we're talking. Microaggressions often seem to me to be something where, socially, the reason microaggression keeps happening is that it's reflective of a certain bias or discrimination or past or whatever it might be in society. Um, you know, the reason, for instance, that African-Americans at fancy events often get mistaken for the help mm-hmm. there, that maybe on the individual level, the people who are mm-hmm. mistaking them are not trying to be assholes, right. but that is reflecting something pretty toxic in
1: society, So bad things happen to people, indignities happen, and then you said it reflects something toxic. The key thing that we need to bring into discussions of prejudice and stereotyping is that people can't stop noticing base rates. So yes, it happens. We should try to make it happen less. But to assume that this shows malice or aggression rather than the normal functioning of the human brain trying to make sense of a complicated world— neural systems notice patterns. We can't stop them from noticing patterns. And this is something that is almost never said. This is something when we talk about stereotypes and prejudice in social psychology, we rarely talk about the effect of base rates. We talk about other processes that explain a lot less variance. Yeah, although what I actually
2: meant by that is I think the base rate itself represents something toxic in society. I think that Centuries of discrimination and genuine racism and segregation and slavery mm-hmm. that okay. they they are reflected in the base rate and mm-hmm. the fact okay. that the fact that's that fine. white people sort of expect that African Americans will be lower than them on the social ladder that that's not something that happened by accident mm-hmm. that's something white people enforced for yep. a very long time and, and arguably do now um, although certainly to a lesser degree. And that one of the the difficulties in this seems to me to be that there are a lot of analyses that make sense on the social level where a lot of the noise is kind of taken out because you're yeah. aggregating up. But then when people sort of bring them to the individual level, maybe may a lot less useful, right? Maybe on any individual level, people may really just be misguided or maybe you just totally misinterpreted mm-hmm. the situation. And so one of the things that strikes me as pretty difficult about – The way in which we teach kids but also just each other, ourselves, to see social injustice is that then there's this question of what do you do with that in your individual interactions? How do you take what you now know about society, what may be true about society, and like bring it down to individual interactions where it may be less true? And one of the things that that you guys write I think pretty interestingly about in the book is this idea of victimhood culture, Mm -hmm. which does often strike me as a social analysis now being turned around on yourself – right? An analysis that may be true of society as a whole, now you're using it to frame yourself in the cosmology of your world.
1: Do you want to talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about these sort of honor, dignity, and victimhood yeah. cultures distinction. Yeah, this is one of the coolest ideas that, that I've found. It's from um, two sociologists, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. They wrote this amazing paper in 2014. So they were, they picked up uh, this new discourse about microaggressions very early. Because, you know, it's not that it didn't exist before 2014. It's just that it was kind of hidden in a few departments at a few universities. So they read this amazing paper in 2014 in an obscure journal. And I read it after our coddling article came out. I read it that fall of 2015. And it was like the Rosetta Stone for. Under- Understanding a lot of what was going on, and what they argue is that every culture people are competing for prestige, and so how do you get it? Well, a very common form of human culture is an honor culture in which men have a certain kind of honor and women have a certain kind of honor, you know, tied to their virginity, their virtue, that sort of thing. Uh, and for men, any tiny slight. Um, is an affront to the honor and must be addressed. You can't brush it off or you lose. You lose status. And so honor cultures breed dueling. They breed a lot of violence. So it's it's a real advance when Western societies, especially as they take up commerce and trade. In commerce and trade, you have no, no need for all that stuff. It's inefficient. With commerce and trade, the moral domain shrinks. You honor your obligations to me. I'll honor mine to you. I'll let you live your life. You let me live mine. In a, what's called a, um, a culture of dignity, People are assumed to have dignity, and if you say something that's insulting to me, I can say I don't care. I can say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never harm me. I'm late for a job interview. I'm not going to fight you. I don't care about what you think. So that is a very, very stable way to have a diverse multicultural society. That's the way that my generation was raised with you know, the idea of sticks and stones. Now, obviously, words can hurt you. It wasn't intended to be a literal statement, but it's a shield that kids can use so they don't have to respond to everything. And what Manning and Campbell observed is that in a funny way, honor culture was coming back. That is this hypersensitivity to individual words, that this thing is so hurtful, so offensive, it it cannot stand. But you don't address it yourself. You don't challenge someone to a duel. You don't settle it yourself. You appeal to an authority. And what they observed is that in some college campuses, and, and they say this can only happen in very egalitarian settings, in which there is an authority who can be brought in on your side basically college elite college campuses. And if you notice, the protests aren't happening at the places where you'd expect the most racism. They happen at the places where you'd expect the least, Yale, Middlebury, Berkeley, places that are very progressive. So they observed a shift to what they call a victimhood culture, in which the way you get status is by emphasizing your own victimhood. That makes you good, because as we said, the high people are bad, the low people are good in this, in this status hierarchy. And if you can't emphasize your victimhood, then you call out others. You you try to protect others who you think are victims. That's the genesis of call-out culture amplified by social media. So if you can imagine young people, some of whom get lured into a victimhood culture, they are now trying to emphasize their weakness and victimization, which is a really, really bad thing. I mean, we spend so much time in the academy saying we've got to stop saying chairman – you know, or anything else, because words, you know, word with labels. People are so sensitive to words, and then we encourage people to call themselves victims or even survivors. Even that's not a really an empowering term. We talk. I just there was just something, to, uh, an article about math trauma. Somebody wrote about survivors of math trauma. Oh, I associate with this. <laughs> okay,
2: well, if you my honestly, my father's did, a mathematician, and no, I actually don't know what this article is about. Okay, but I, um, I,
1: I was quite traumatized by algebra two specifically. Uh, okay, so that's so that's concept creep. You mean you hated it? Do you mean you were damaged and you're made a I less effective? But that, right, but that's the point, is that um, words do matter. And if we encourage but people to take math But so what is the idea of math trauma? Oh, the idea of it is— like, why would
2: a smart person believe in math trauma? Let me ask you that question, because I don't know what this concept is, well, it's and I'm concept, curious yeah,
1: about it. So generally, the way concept creep works is you take a psychological term. So certainly there's math anxiety, no doubt about that. People can even have panic attacks um, in, in a math test. So no doubt about that. It's, it's important that people study that and try to help them. But trauma— Trauma used to refer to physical damage to tissue. And then gradually over the 20th century, we allowed for PTSD. that they have to be major, like life-threatening fear. Um, so trauma used to have a particular meaning. If we allow people to say, oh, you know, if that person comes to speak, I'll be traumatized. It means you'll be upset. If young, and this is part of safetyism. If young people have come to believe that negative emotions, even strong negative emotions, mean that they're in danger, then someone has to protect them. And if young people don't have hundreds and hundreds of chances to experience strong negative emotions and then get through it without anybody helping them, then they're not ready for college so this was a this is a point
2: you all make in the book. I'd actually like you to expand on a little bit. Can you talk about how? framing yourself as a survivor or framing yourself as a victim can actually change how you physiologically
1: or psychologically respond to things in your life because because this felt to me like an important point yeah so so let's let's just make sure we have all three of the the great untruths on the table here so we already talked about great untruth number one uh, which is the untruth of fragility um, and that was where we talked about anti-fragility and people are actually anti-fragile and if you don't know that, you'd think that I need to be defended from negative emotions because negative experiences will damage me great untruth number two is called the untruth of emotional reasoning and that is always trust your feelings. Students are sometimes told that. I think Kanye West tweeted something about it recently. And, you know, of course, intuition is powerful. There are times when you should trust your feelings. But what Greg discovered in cognitive behavioral therapy is that, especially if you're prone to depression or anxiety, your instant feelings are negative appraisals. People are out to get me. This won't work. I'm a bad person. My future is dark. This is what makes you mentally ill and it's a symptom of mental illness. Aaron Beck's great discovery about CBT in the 60s is that if you interrupt this cycle of thoughts, you free the person from depression and they can see the world more clearly. Now, if we take students who are prone to depression and anxiety as it is, and we encourage them to see the world as a darker, scarier place, this is more likely to plunge them into depression. If we get them to see themselves as someone who will be damaged rather than strengthened by going to a talk by someone they hate, we are harming them. So you know, I went to Yale in the 80s, and I think David Duke was beginning to be a thing back then. I, I can't remember who was the, you know, the, the Nazi you know, in the news back then. But I like to think what that – What a world. That had, you know, yeah, <laughs> the eternal the, the return. return. You know, I like to think that had he spoken on campus, I would have gone. Um, you know, I'm Jewish. But I wouldn't have, praised, have phrased it as like, ah, oh, if a Nazi speaks on campus, I have to run. I have to be protected. I would have said like, wow, I, you know, like when I, when I read part That's of Mein Kampf, so it was really interesting. Like, I'm glad I read part of Mein Kampf. Like I want my kids to read part of Mein you know. So because I see, well, now I know that we're anti-fragile and we have to be exposed to things.
2: But let me ask you about, the, there's actually a different place I wanted to take this originally, so I'm going to try to remember it. But let me ask you about the Nazi analogy because- what I always say when I'm asked about this issue, when I'm asked about deplatforming and mm-hmm. protesting speakers and, and so on, I say, like, look, like, it really depends on the individual speaker that I'm usually opposed to it. But would I protest or try to deplatform a Nazi? Probably. That if I had been on campus, I don't think I would have gone to, to see David Duke or, you know, some neo-Nazi who was speaking there. I think I would have said, like, no, we should not – we should not be inviting Nazis to have a to have a platform on our campus. That mm-hmm. we shouldn't amplify every idea out there. That that free speech but, yep, does not require yep. that like the okay, Nazi so gets an, an an
1: invitation to, to right. a campus okay. debate. So again, so let's let let's, yeah. let's always focus the discussion by institution, and then let's talk about what's the purpose of the institution. So uh, I'm talking only about universities here. Um, speeches at universities. What's the purpose of the university? It is to discover truth, explore it, interrogate it, increase it, and pass it on. So inviting a provocateur doesn't do that. But inviting someone who is a scholar who has something unpopular to say, that would. So one question is who should be invited? I don't see any particular value to inviting a Nazi. Now, if somebody – if there's somebody who has a different view about affirmative action right, or about but, immigration – that's why I jump,
2: I'm asking about the Nazi thing because I do think that there's a version of this that is like absolutism and a version of this that is
1: case by case. Yeah, OK. Yeah, so, so I'm not a free speech absolutist. In fact, I don't talk much about free speech because I don't think the key thing to focus on for universities is free speech. Free speech is important as an American right that the government cannot punish you. That I'm very glad about. That doesn't mean that at a university anyone can say anything wherever they want. I don't think it's about free speech. I think it's about... Viewpoint diversity, people engaging in ways in which they know that they will be challenged. That's what I insist on. That's what we have to have at university. And as soon as we have orthodoxy, as soon as we're talking about poverty or immigration and someone says something and other people think, well, now wait a second, there's a counterargument, but they're afraid to say it. That's where we are. As soon as people are afraid to say it because of the social consequences, then we fail at our purpose. So I agree with that. And so that, that actually brings me to the thing I would wanted to get
2: to here, which is one of the things I think is really valuable about the book um, that certainly got me thinking about is it almost made me think of these questions as having like a two-sided question. There's a question that, that often gets run together into one. There's the issue of the overall social analysis, right? Like, for instance, do you take a social justice lens on the world to just use like the common, the, the, the common mm-hmm. label now? You know, do you think there is a lot of gender discrimination, racial discrimination, et cetera, et cetera? But then, you know, where does that put you? How do you absorb that? How does that change the way you see yourself in the world? Like, how does that change, like, what you want to listen to or not listen to? And one of the things that I was thinking about reading the book is how much you have the problem here of a lot of the people who are attacking the tactics. What they really want to attack is the underlying analysis. When Fox News is putting up video of protesters at Yale, what they're upset about is not really protesters at Yale. Like, they have a very different social analysis, right? They don't believe in a social justice look at the country. And on the other side, I think a lot of the people, including sometimes me, who will defend this stuff, not so much the protests, but what we're trying to defend is an analysis that we think is correct, right? A way of looking at at the world that we think is correct. And I think a question that your book brings up, and, and I think it does so in an interesting way, is... You know, how could you separate those two things? How can you have an analysis and approach to inequality and injustice that is, you know, quite honest about it, right? That doesn't dull it out because that would be, you know, easier, but that doesn't leave students people in general feeling disempowered or feeling mm-hmm. like the only way forward is to kind of cocoon themselves or to stop like having conversations with okay. people who don't disagree with them. Separating out like the, the structural analysis from some of the psychological consequences of being radicalized in that way seems like a very hard and important okay. question.
1: So you keep asking about these issues about justice and social justice. Let's go right into that. Let's talk about that. So let's look at cases of gender inequality of outcomes. So in the tech industry, you know, the number of people in programming and engineering jobs, it varies by company, but around 20% female. In non-tech jobs, it's g- generally, in most of the companies, it's fairly well balanced. So are you committed to saying because you said there's a particular view, are you committed to the view that the reason for the gender imbalance in the tech jobs and the engineering jobs is because of structural factors or sexism? Are in you committed spe- to that in tech specifically?
2: Yeah. No, I'm not committed to anything. Okay, um, oh good. Okay. Well, what so I would what say. So, what is this
1: perspective that you are talking about? That there is that there's widespread racial and gender discrimination in American society. The, the, sure. That 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 okay. is that is Fine. the perspective, and and are you open to looking at any place? And are you open to saying, "Oh, hey, there's none there." I am. Um, although have you ever heard anyone say that from the progressive activist side in different places? Sure. Okay, like where? Where is it agreed that there is not gender discrimination? Well, there's not in not in an industry, but in individual cases at all. So often every industry up. and every company? I don't know about every
2: company, but so well, I guess let's use tech here because I think that's mm-hmm. what you want to talk about. Yeah. So. I do not associate myself with the view that in a perfectly equal society, it would necessarily be the case that the tech industry would be 50-50 male-female. Thank you. But I also don't associate myself with the view that we are somehow in a perfectly equal society where Mm -hmm. the current imbalances in the the tech industry reflect mere – you know, object versus person orientation Mm -hmm. or anything else. I've heard enough testimony and seen enough evidence of what it is like trying to be in that pipeline or how Mm -hmm. people are treated when they are young and going into these industries or young and going into these topics Mm -hmm. um, to think that the discrimination problem is very real Mm -hmm. um, and that we have warped the pipeline in profound ways. I think a very difficult thing about looking at any of these issues is that people want to be able to look at where we are in society and draw some firm conclusion about, you know, well, was this discrimination or is this just some kind of innate difference between men and women or Mm -hmm. white people and Asian people or whatever it might be? And the problem is in society is so complex and we do have so many inequalities going in sometimes in a number of different directions that
1: you can't unwind it like that. We just, we honestly okay. don't have the okay. evidence. But so, well, on some things we do. Okay. So let's, let's start with the question of gender discrimination in tech. And I'd like to separate two very different things. One is that the numerical counting of who's got what jobs and the other is the culture, whether the culture is dismissive or degrading. Um, and from... What I can see, obviously, the numbers are imbalanced, and in many companies there is a toxic bro culture. So that, uh, what we do in the book, so we have a we have a chapter on social justice, we have a chapter on identity politics, and something that I'm I'm very pleased with it. We really made a deliberate decision. It seems to be working out. Is we we really tried to not go in and say, oh, the, you know, this is good or this is bad, but to say, okay, social justice. It, it's not a meaningless term at all. It has meanings. Let's unpack them. And there are some forms of justice that are clearly issues of justice, and then there are some things that are done that actually sometimes require injustice. So we distinguish in the book, uh, we focus on there is distributive justice. So are things being distributed according to some uh, some d- principle of equity or desert? And then there is procedural justice. Are people being treated properly, given uh, proper and equal dignity? And so if it is the case, and I often hear this, if it is the case that in, a, in an organization, when a woman says something, people don't really respond, but then a man says the same thing, and then they respond. That is a, a, a problem. That is uh, an indignity. That is inefficient. That is bad. That should change. And that is one of the things I so I teach at NYU Stern, I have MBA students, that is one of the things that the women say that that still goes on. By all indications, to enter the corporate world now is vastly better for women, for people of color, for gay people than it was in the 80s or 90s, so there's been huge progress, but that one still goes on. So, to get back to tech, the the argument that there's a bro culture, yes, that is a problem that is an injustice that should change. There's a separate issue about numerical representation. And here's one where we actually do have evidence. There is very consistent evidence from a lot of sources that men and women are very, very similar in their abilities and very, very different in what they enjoy. And if you look at kids' play, if you look at what kids do when as soon as the adults leave, they do more gendered play. So, you know, the Demore memo, he actually did a pretty good job reviewing the research. You know, it, it created a moral panic. Google fired him because the number one rule is you don't criticize a diversity policy. Even if it's backfiring, you don't criticize it. So I think the whole Google memo mess um, was a result of our inability to actually use evidence to solve problems. There's so much fear. There's so much activism and moral passion um, that we can't actually figure out what's going on. But I would like to ask you, are you willing to say that boys and girls enjoy playing in different ways or do you think that they're the same? No,
2: absolutely. Okay. There's a weird thing. you know. So my friend and colleague, Matt Iglesias, every couple of months, he um, likes to tweet out Uh, I forget the exact way he phrases it, but I believe there are innate biological differences between men and women and nothing happens because like (laughs) the point is that it's actually not the particularly dangerous or even a particularly controversial thing to say. Like, of course, there are biological and innate differences between men and Mm women and I do not share your high opinion of the DeMore memo, which I didn't – I actually just thought was like a poorly done blog post. Um, I also don't share the view that it should have caused this gigantic panic. Um, It just seemed to me like a little bit of a kind of ridiculous thing on on a lot of sides. But what I do think – and I want to be careful because I genuinely don't have super strong views about the technology industry around gender at all. It's just not my issue and it's not something I study. But I think that there is a desire – to work backwards from where we are and to pull together information that then says, oh, we'll see – because um, where we are, then you can sort of tell this just-so story about people-oriented versus object-oriented mm-hmm. and what people like to play with. You know, there's a lot of evidence that depending on how you teach different kinds of computer science, you get very different results in whether or not um, women are interested in it. You can teach computer science as a very kind of abstract, highly quantitative, like highly mm-hmm. kind of sterile okay. thing. Or you Great. can frame it in terms of the actual problems you're helping people to solve and you can frame – Yeah, there's we should a lot explore of ways all of that. that but yeah, but, we but that's should, a little we bit what I mean the... that one of the problems I often see come about is that people take an existing reality in society and then, you know, they sort of like flip it around and say, well, what we need to do is show, you know, and there's a lot of evidence for a lot of different things depending on how you read it. What we're looking for is whether or not there's evidence that could lead us to say this existing inequality mm-hmm. is reasonable and rational. So nothing needs to be done really to change it. Mm -hmm. And people seem very attracted to those kinds of arguments. um, When these things are very complicated, like what Mm -hmm. is the tech industry, right? Like I actually think, I think the best version of this argument was made at Slate Star Codex. I thought the DeMore memo was a bad version of it, but the best version of it was Scott Alexander at Slate Star Codex, which I think like made a number of very good points. And also it opens up this question of, is the tech industry, the way we understand it now, would that have been the tech industry? Is that the way we would understand those jobs? Is that the way it would have evolved under different conditions? Mm-hmm. Okay. Society is such a complex thing that it's just genuinely very hard to know. Yep. Um, I and, and, and as I say, I don't have a super strong opinion on it, but what I do have a reasonably strong opinion on is that There's a lot of desire to just work backwards from the thing we have now um, as opposed to wonder like, well, why does the thing we have now look the way it does? Why do we code different Mm -hmm. professions the way we do code them? It's to me – that's where things get really complicated,
1: and it gets complicated part because I also don't have the other answer, right? It's okay. a less satisfying so, argument to make. Okay. So these are so a really useful concept. One of the best ideas I've encountered in the last five years is called a wicked problem. Um, it's a term coined originally by Riddle and Weber, two planning professors at UC Berkeley in the early '70s, and it came to my attention in a paper called "Wicked Polarization" by uh, Michael Schellenberger and, and Ted Nordhaus. And wicked problems are problems that don't just sit there and let you work on them. Uh, a tame problem is a like an engineering problem or like cholera in the 19th century was a tame problem. It was a gigantic problem, killed millions and millions of people. But as people studied it, they learned more and more about it and then they solved it. Sanitation, if you, if you have piped in water, you solve the problem. But Ridland Weber pointed out that in the 20th century, and we've solved most of those problems, now our problems are things like poverty, education, racism. These are wicked problems because... When analysts come to them, they bring preconceptions. Analysts come knowing what solution they want, what kinds of, you know, if, if you're a Republican, it's lower taxes. You know, if it's a Democrat, more safety, whatever. You know, we, we come with preferred solutions. And so they say the more experts study a problem, the more white papers they write, the further we get from a solution because now there's more and more evidence on each side and it's easier and easier to be convinced of your side. So all the problems we're talking about, gender issues in the tech industry, microaggressions, how to structure universities. These are all wicked problems. And so what I'd like to do um, is not not try to you and me figure out how do we solve a particular problem. No, we're going to solve it. (laughs) Let's talk about the conditions under which wicked problems can be solved. That's what I'm so alarmed about because I think the conditions for solving a wicked problem are you have to have people who see it from multiple perspectives, you have to bring them together in ways in which they have relationships of accountability to each other within a zone in which they can talk privately and they are reinforced or rewarded for actually reaching a solution. This almost never happens. So as the academy has gone from leaning left to being overwhelmingly left, there are still center-right intellectuals, but they're increasingly at think tanks. And so the the right-wing think tanks are putting out papers, the left-wing universities are putting out papers, and on a lot of important issues— even what to do about prejudice, we've made very little progress. We have very little to show for it because I think we have these wicked problems and universities should be the preeminent places that address them and they are less able to do so now than they were 20 or 30 years ago. This is what I am passionate about. This is why I and some others started Heterodox Academy. It's not about helping conservatives. It's about saving, fixing, improving universities and the quality of our research. So one of the things that that helps clarify for me is— so one, like, and, and I want to
2: note this, right? Like my frame of reference is politics and politics has a very different set of power balances yeah. than universities. Yeah. Different so tailors, I just want to different. note a little yep. bit that we are we are talking from slightly different spaces here. But it's not my view, unfortunately, because I would prefer the world to work this way. Like what, what do I do in my life? Like I call people up and I interview them or I have them on my podcast and I have like nice, quiet conversations. But it's not my view that, most of the hardest problems in society are solved in these calm, like people sitting together talking ways. I think there is a, a somewhat systematic tendency to both underestimate, but but also sort of sanitize the history of activism and the history of confronting power. I mean, you talked a, a bit ago in our, our discussion about this tremendous advance in rights we've had over the past 50, 60 years, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement. Every one of those movements was extremely unpopular. Mm-hmm. People were angry at them. They hated them. I mean, Martin Luther King was unpopular the day he died. The Freedom Riders were unpopular. The gay movement, like think about Act Up, like it was unpopular. Mm-hmm. Confrontation is unpopular and often necessary in part to get people yep. to see things they don't want to see. Yep. And so one of the things I was trying to do in the conversation that I realized we were sort of talking past each other a bit now was, you know, when I read the book, I was like... Oh, this is very interesting. It's separating out the kind of analysis of social power Mm -hmm. and social justice from the way that is absorbed and taught and acted upon, particularly at the individual level. And like that's actually something that I think I'm pretty sympathetic to. I think we probably – you and I have a little bit of different um, analysis of of the power structures as a whole. But also I do think there's a way in which we have a different idea of how those things are confronted. One of my priors is that we have more injustice in society than we are willing to recognize. I think that, that that's true all over. Um, I'll use an example that is less charged. I'm a vegan. Um, I believe very strongly that the way we treat animals oh, is like yes, a moral a horror. horror. Yes, um, I agree. But people hate vegans. You tell people you're a vegan. Like we are – there's actually this study that came out. I like, you we're make One of the uncomfortable. most unpopular groups. Yeah. And you know and the ways in which it, and then it's like oh you're being sanctimonious you're being you know like you 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 know the way you're doing it is turning people against you all these same things right that like oh no yeah maybe you're making some good points about that we shouldn't just torture chickens from the moment they're they're born but oh like if only you would do it in some better way that didn't make me uncomfortable maybe we can sit down and talk about it somehow else and that, I just don't think it's true. Like I think, you know, like the old adage that power doesn't give up without a fight, I, I, I do think is true. One of the places where I am concerned, and I think I come in more with your analysis, is I think there are a lot of places where people have power and they don't realize it, or where they are now the power and they don't realize it. And I think for in particular on campuses, on campus, that's, that's often right. true. But I think it creates a lot of confusion in the discussion because people are trying to ladder it up or ladder it down. Campus often acts as a kind of, metaphor or synecdoche for society as a whole, and it's not. It is very distinct dynamics. Yeah, that's right. But it that's gets, right. because it is important, right? It's educating future generations, but also because it's visible. I think it's a quality of kind of like shorting out the circuits as people try to like use it to say what is happening in society rather than what is happening
1: on campus. Okay. So t- two responses. The first, as you said, power never gives up without a fight. So I think there is something true in that, which is that power tends to try to preserve itself. But if you take it as an axiom, and I think many people do, that it's an axiom. I think that becomes an article of faith. Um, David Brooks had an article, I can't remember when, whenever I think Obama's second Supreme Court picker, um, there was a certain point at which there was not a single WASP on the Supreme Court leading either House of Congress or as president or vice president, the only Protestant was Obama. And his point, point in the, I can't find it, but his point, if I remember, was that the WASPs did set up basically a system that was relatively open. Of course, they had prejudices. My parents couldn't join certain country clubs. But my parents taught me that America is the promised land. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's amazingly better than any place we've ever been. And it's a wide open place where Jews have been successful. Sure, there are microaggressions, there are inequalities, but to hell with them. Just charge ahead, get an education work, and you'll be successful. So you can say that power never gives up without a fight, and it sounds very dramatic. And there's some truth to the general principle, but as a statement of fact, it's wrong in universities, we've been trying to diversify so hard for so long. It's not as though we're, you know, we're white supremacists desperately defending the white men at the time. I mean, so it just misunderstands a lot of institutions if you say such things as an article of faith. And I think a lot of people take it as an article of faith. And that's why they freak out when a study is published showing that discrimination isn't as bad in some places at some times. If you freak out when you see evidence that disconfirms your article of faith, you don't belong in the academy. So that's the first point. Second point was, oh, yeah, interesting contrast you made between your world is politics minus the academy. And as you were talking, I realized actually there might be some really deep similarities, which is both worlds are based on the idea that if you have one party full of experts, should we trust them to make policy for the country? No, of course not. The whole idea of a democracy and a legislature is – I mean, it wasn't necessarily there at this founding with the parties, but the idea is you have people arguing it out with rules, and what comes out is better than what any one person or small group could have come up with. So in politics, it's much more forceful, and there is a role, I think, for intimidation in politics. Um, and there certainly is a role for protest and threats, and you know, Lyndon Johnson needed pressure from Martin Luther King and others. So your world is different, but I think our worlds are the same in saying that you have to have that dynamic. You have to have the pushing. And there can be good rules and bad rules. So let's imagine in politics, we in one country, we allow assassination and kidnapping. Another, we don't. Which one has better politics? Which one is gonna end up producing better policies? Um, let's suppose in my world um, where you have unpopular opinions, and things that we now know are true were often very unpopular when they first came out. But they had the evidence behind them, they ultimately were, were proven out. Um, let's suppose we have one world, one academic world in which scholars are free to challenge and then they can be ridiculed, but if they have the data, they prevail. And let's imagine another is if they challenge, they're fired, they're shamed, they're called racist, sexist, hetero sexist, whatever it is. I would say that the first academic world would produce better results. And the world that has a call-out culture with shaming and lots of people self-censoring isn't going to get reliable results. My argument is we are now in that second world, whereas the world, the academic world I grew up in was a wide open place where you could be provocative. There were walls. You could say things in private. You could publish things in journals. Um, we're, much more, we're much more walking, teaching, and studying on eggshells now than we were 10 or 20 years ago. So I think that's interesting. And so I, I guess the two- Two things I would say on it. One, on the question of whether or not
2: of power giving up without a fight. I take your point, right? That if you take that too far, right? Like if you take anything too far, it becomes wrong. Um, I... It is not my read of the sort of 20th century history of how universities opened up to more kinds of people, and sort of to some degree of like how the Jews became white, and you know, the, the, there's this, there's a, mm-hmm. a complex like racial history in all this, um, mm-hmm. and and how these things happened, and who is doing what, but it's always some mixture of pressure and suasion, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, the like the the history of social change is very complex um, in that way. Uh, it isn't that I want to take away the role of suasion. It's that I want to—I I don't want to, like, wipe out the role of pressure, right? I think there's, for no. instance, a tendency to look In back politics, on— politics,
1: of course, there's going to be pressure. I
2: think there's a tendency to look back on the civil rights movement and really sanitize mm-hmm. Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. And, 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 and that period. It's like everybody, like, quotes this one line yeah. out of the I Have a Dream speech. But that was a much more radical movement that mm-hmm. was very confrontational, that people were very upset about. Yeah, and, and that was so, essential. It wasn't going to was change essential. on its own. So then the, the other thing is—and um, this goes to your point about academia— I agree. I think that you should be able to discuss things. Like, I think that you should be able to have these conversations. I mean, like to some degree, like this whole show is about having these conversations. I think that we need to be careful though. One thing I hear happen, I hear it happen a little bit in in, in your rhetoric sometimes, but much more beyond you is a tendency to sort of, to frame things as all or nothing Mm -hmm. and to look back on golden ages. (laughs) That's a cognitive distortion. Yep. And so like, we had this world of total free of total free speech and free inquiry, you know, say 50 years ago. But now, now that we have these terrible social justice activists mm-hmm. on campus, we don't. And of course we didn't. We had um, a much less diverse academia. We had different kinds of speech codes. I mean, the president of Kenyan has given the, uh, Shonda Carter has given this great speech on this. There were a lot of ways in which zones of inquiry were limited and now they're limited in different ways. And I actually agree with you. Like, I think that the... I think the walking on eggshells thing is one of the problems that need to be addressed now. It's Again, it's why I think your book is valuable in this way. To say that we had problems at other times is not to say we don't Mm -hmm. have problems now, but it is to say that I think people need to be careful about throwing out some kinds of progress because at any period in which you're having different kinds of progress, you also have instability come with that Mm -hmm. progress. You also have people going too far in that progress. There's a lot of great academic work, and this is in politics, not about academia, but about the way in which, particularly in America, periods of racial progress bring periods of political instability, and periods of racial stagnation bring periods of political stability. Things feel fine if nobody's upsetting the apple cart, Mm -hmm. but that actually doesn't mean you're making progress. It means oftentimes that you're not. What you've done is you've constructed the power structure in such a way that you're living with things you shouldn't live with. And- That's why, again, one of my interests in the book, which I think you've sort of taken as a criticism, but actually was not meant this way, is I think that it is important for people who care about these issues, as I do, and sort of align themselves, you know, empirically um, with a social justice analysis. Like I think there is more injustice in this country than people want to admit, but I think it's important, nevertheless, to look downstream and think: Is this? coming out usefully in the way people are acting in the way people are talking in the way people are organizing? Is the way people are expressing this good for them or good for the topics they're trying to go after? There's like one set of arguments about how much discrimination do we have in society. And there's another set of arguments about how do people organize around that? How do we talk about that? Like, what does that mean about having, say, speakers on campus all the way up to what does that mean about the ways in which you confront this White House? And these are kinds of analyses that I think are worth actually separating. I think there's a lot of bad criticism from the right on tactics that are really about an effort to push back on a criticism of existing inequalities in the social order. And I think there's a, some amount of defense on the left that um, appear to be defensive tactics but are trying to defend the underlying analysis. And I think that trying to disentangle those is actually a valuable thing. Okay.
1: I will certainly grant that there is more injustice and racism than some people believe. And again, I just – over the last two days reading the Hidden Tribes report – And you see the seven tribes, the seven groups laid out in terms of what they believe, and the the progressive activists have like 99% agreement on certain things, and the the committed conservatives have 99% agreement on others. And one of the questions is like, you know, racial inequalities result uh, primarily from structural factors versus, you know, racial inequalities are, you know, anyone can get ahead regardless of their circumstances. And, you know, you look at that and you see, well, like, they're both true. But one group says entirely one thing. One group says entirely the other. So I'll grant that there's more racial inequality and structural uh, 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 racism and and problems than the groups on the right will admit to if you'll grant that sometimes there's less than the progressive activists believe. In other words, some institutions actually are not structurally racist. Will you agree to that? Yeah, of course. OK, good. All right. We're all set. <laughs> I no, it's just, just I rarely hear that. I've rarely heard someone
2: say that. It's funny because like nothing about that makes me uncomfortable at all, right? And, okay, and I'm going to tell my diversity trainer you said that because he would disagree with you. That's fair. Like I've, I've listen. I'm not here. I'm not here to back up your diversity trainer. One of the things I will just say because you brought up the Hidden Tribes report a couple times, which is an interesting report. I just don't know how much I think polling people about what they believe is like, that to me is a pretty unempirical way of thinking about this question. Not only do I think there are institutions where there are fewer problems than than people worry there are, I think it's probably the case that on a lot of campuses, um, the intense sort of focus on problems makes people believe the world is just worse than it is. I think Mm -hmm. that it's often the case that the people sort of like most pulled into a certain kind of analysis end up taking it a little bit too far. Again, this is why I sort of make the point about the differences between campus life and sort of the broader American life or the broader... Or political sphere in which in which I operate that I think that you're sort of here formed in a place where people often take the analysis way too far. Yeah. And I'm formed in a place where Donald Trump
1: is president. Yeah. No, you're, that, okay, <laughs> no, you're right. That's actually a very, very good point, something I'd really like to clarify. Um, because I am often critical of trends on the campus left, many people assume that I must be on the right because in this day and age, if you're not with us, you're against us. But something that I often say is that I am very alarmed and, and opposed to the illiberalism of the campus campus left and of the, of the Republican Party and the off-campus right. Um, and what I mean by that is I'm all about process. In the course of writing The Righteous Mind, I really came to to believe that we are all individually kind of stupid. And when you put us together with people who see the world just as we do, we get even more stupid. And so I'm a huge fan of process. We should be living in small tribes, dancing around campfires with periodic wars against neighboring groups. That's sort of the normal uh, human state of affairs. We've built these amazing, peaceful, multi-ethic democracies. We're living above our design constraints. That's only possible because we developed rule of law, restraints on violence, property rights, all sorts of things that allow us to interact. So those, I think, are miracles. And I'm alarmed whenever something degrades the process that maintains this. So the magic of universities, I love being a professor. I love universities. And I see some of our magic being dissipated by this subculture of intimidation and threats so that people are afraid to say what they think. And then the process breaks down. In Washington, on the other hand, um, it's complicated. And whenever I say anything about this, I hear from my friends on the right that I've oversimplified. But my view is very much that of, of uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann, and it's even worse than it looks, that yes, both parties are can be blamed. And yes, the Democrats treated the Republicans badly for decades and decades. But overall, the dissent down, the Republicans were more, let's say, innovative about ways to ramp up the, uh, the, the the fight for control. And you know, both sides did bad things. But I think the Republicans, and then especially with Trump, have just so violated violated norms that we need to have an effective democratic society. So I hope listeners will not say, oh, you know, Haidt is criticizing the extremes of social justice. He must be alt-right, which is what people say on Twitter, just to make it clear I got into this whole thing to help the Democrats. I was always on the left from the time I was a teenager all the way through when I wrote The Righteous Mind. I still have never voted for Republican and it doesn't look like I'll be doing that anytime in the next five or 10 years. So I I got into political psychology because I couldn't stand it that in 2000 and in 2004, Al Gore and then John Kerry had no clue how to talk about American morality. They kept thinking that You should vote for the Democrats because we'll give you a better retirement account. We'll put the money in a lockbox or whatever Al Gore said in 2000. They kept talking about self-interest. They had no idea how to talk about morality. So I converted my research over from looking at how cultures vary across around the world to how left and right vary. And I did that precisely to help the Democrats win. In the process, I actually committed myself to reading conservative writing, watching conservative TV, uh, and at first, it was very unpleasant. But once I got past my initial partisan reactions, I realized, oh, my God, I never thought of that argument. I never looked at it that way. And I realized, you know, as John Stuart Mill said, I didn't know it at the time, but as I later, you know, his famous quote, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. And so that has become really the the watchword of my of my work is that we are all so limited, so prone to confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, so prone to tribalism that we have to have good processes to bring out the best in us. Washington does not do that. Why Our democracy is in big, Big trouble. Now, many others are. Social media globalization has had effects on a lot of countries. But we're in really, really big trouble. And both parties are to blame. But I do think the Republicans are more to blame. I would love to have the, this longer conversation with you about political psychology
2: someday. But I think that that is probably a good place to close our okay. conversation for today. So the. Question I always ask at the end of the show is, what are three books that have influenced you over the years um, that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Uh, three books that have influenced me over the years. Well, I think to live in this insane time – I mean, you know, while I was writing the book, I was really anxious. I thought, you know, we're going to have a nuclear war with Korea. I mean, just the madness of our time – so um I'll take the easy way out and I'll say if everybody would read Marcus Aurelius meditations it's the it's the wisest book Stoic wisdom is what we need now I mean I don't know how anyone can go through 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 the day without a little stoic detachment from the insanity so read Marcus Aurelius uh, meditations. In our time of polarization, when people are so quick to take offense and social relations are so much more difficult, everyone should read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that in graduate school back when I was a you know arrogant, smart-ass Jewish kid, uh, loved to argue and offend people. I read that and realized I was doing everything wrong, and I think it's helped make me uh, just more effective in interpersonal relationships. So that's two. And let's see. What's another another really good book. I think for listeners of this podcast, I'll suggest Karen Stenner's book, The Authoritarian Dynamic. She's been getting a lot of play recently, and she and I wrote an article in Cass Sunstein's edited volume on authoritarianism. So there are shorter things to do. But that book turns out to be the book that could have helped Europe avoid so many of the right-wing reactions if they had taken Stenner's arguments about authoritarianism seriously and the, the importance of emphasizing common humanity, emphasizing common citizenship, not emphasizing difference, not saying were different. If European countries in particular had read Stenner uh, in 2005 and handled their immigration policy more intelligently, I think the, the political situation in Europe would look very different than it does today. John Haidt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ezra. This was great fun. All right. That's the podcast. Thank you so
2: much for being here. Thank you, Jonathan Haidt, for being here. To my producer, Julian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. You know, something happened in between when I recorded this podcast and I published it, which was I happened to watch Hannah Gatsby's stand-up special, Minette, on Netflix. I've been using this outro space occasionally for recommendations of my own, and I was, I was blown away by this piece of work. And I don't want to spoil it, but I do want to say that I think it's relevant to all of this. Um, I think it's relevant to this conversation we're having, to the conversations we're having more broadly in society. It's stand-up comedy, but it's also a story about stories and about how to think about people's stories and about how to think about what perspectives are getting represented. So anyway, if you enjoyed this discussion, I think it's worth checking out Hannah Gautsby's Nanette. There's probably no piece of art I have come into contact with this year that I've been quite so blown away by. Anyway, with all that said, thank you for being here, and we'll be back in a couple of days.